0: God's word is our great and shall be ours forever. To Who is Jesus? That's the question Mark has set out to answer in this Gospel. And as we have come to the midpoint of the Gospel and the turning point, that question is front and center. What is the popular opinion? Who do people say Jesus is? The answer hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. When Jesus asked his disciples in the verses we looked at last week, they rattled off a list of answers. People say all kinds of stuff, and they still do today. But the answers had one thing in common. Jesus is a great teacher, but nothing more. Jesus then asked his disciples the question we all must answer. But what about you? Who do you say I am? They had seen the miracles. They heard the demons shriek as they came out. They heard him claim the authority to forgive sins. They sat in the boat as he hushed the violent storm on the sea. They saw him raise the dead. The time had come to give an answer, to make a confession. Who do you say I am? Peter spoke for them all. You are the Messiah. Peter nails it. Messiah is the Hebrew and Christ is the Greek. For the anointed one, the one God had promised, the chosen one who would come to deliver his people. This is where we pick it up in this episode. We'll begin with a prayer. Lord, open our ears to your word. Help us to clearly see who you are. And then, Lord, help us, as Peter did, to make a bold confession Amen. Mark 8, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's how Jesus usually referred to himself, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter had given a correct answer. But like the blind man at Bethsaida who was healed in stages, Peter didn't see clearly. Jesus now gives a correct understanding of who he is And of his mission. And it's not happy stuff. It's scary. Physically abused, rejected by his people and by the church, killed, and after three days rise again. But the disciples didn't understand what that meant. Killed, they understood, and they didn't like it. They are shocked. This does not fit their vision of their teacher, a vision of power and victory over demons and sickness and sin and nature and even death. So Peter takes Jesus aside. You can just see this, can't you? Peter, with a distressed and concerned look on his face, pulls Jesus aside and says, stop it. Stop talking like this. This is not what's going to happen to you. Do you think you would have reacted differently? I don't think I would have. During this season of Lent, we hear again of all that Jesus suffered, and we think If I had been there, I would have helped him. I would have somehow eased his suffering. But that is wrong, horribly wrong. Stop Jesus' suffering? Great, now we all go to hell. He must suffer, because only his suffering can rescue us from the damnation we had earned for ourselves. No, as strange as it sounds to our ears, it would be better to say, Go, Jesus. Go to agony and death. Go in my place. This is why he came. This is what it means to be our Messiah. This, this is who Jesus is. So far in Mark's gospel, we have seen Satan work through demons. Here we see that in a less obvious but no less effective way, he works through humans, through Peter, One of Jesus' closest friends, he tempts Jesus not to fulfill his mission. Peter rebuked Jesus because he thought this suffering and getting killed was a bad idea. And, well, according to human way of thinking, it it was. But now Jesus rebukes Peter in the strongest terms because God's ways are not our ways. What we would not have come up with in a million years, that God would sacrifice himself and endure our punishment so that we might go free, This is God's way. Jesus corrected their false worldly expectations of what he would do. Now he corrects their false worldly expectation of what it means to follow him, as he promises them a cross too. Verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation— The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Following Christ is to deny oneself. It is not making one's own interests and pleasures the center of one's life, but making God and God's will the center of one's life. It is obedience to the most basic commandment, the first, taking oneself out of the role of God. Following Christ is a willingness to suffer shame and even death, if necessary, to remain faithful to Jesus. Mark's first readers had already experienced that. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Because whoever tries to salvage a beautiful earthly existence will lose it. That person will end up in hell. But losing one's earthly life for Christ means having eternal life with Jesus in heaven. Possessing the whole world. Not that we are going to achieve that, but even if we could, it would not be worth spending an eternity in hell. The sad reality is that many sacrifice their spiritual lives for far less. How serious is Jesus? He points to Judgment Day and says, He will reject all those who reject him. And in case anyone is tempted to say, Well, it's all just words, just talk. Jesus tells them that many of them will live to see his kingdom come with power. He's not referring to his return at the end of time. No one standing there would live to see that. He is referring to his death and resurrection. This is the power of his kingdom, the power of the cross to forgive sins, and the power of his resurrection announcing victory over the grave. These are the divine actions of his kingdom, powerful actions. And in just one generation, that message of the cross and the empty tomb would spread across the Mediterranean world, bringing people to faith and result in congregations in Egypt, Asia Minor, and yes, even in Rome. Jesus' words still apply to us. There will be a cost to following him. There will be a cross to bear. But there will be a crown of glory on the last day. And the sufferings we endure are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Six days they had to think about what Jesus had said, and now he took three of them up a mountain with him. There was something they needed to see. Chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Suddenly, when the disciples looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Jesus shines with a radiance the world has never known as he pulls back the veil of his humility to reveal his divine glory as the eternal God. It's almost as though heaven and earth touch as Moses and Elijah have come from heaven. Professor Deutschlander comments on the scene, Moses, the great giver of the law, speaks to the one who redeems us from the curse of the law. Elijah, so persecuted and hated as a prophet that he almost gave up in despair, now is here in glory with the author of his glory, the Savior from the law and the deliverer from all the world's pain and seeming frustration. Jesus' presence with these foremost prophets of the Old Testament shows that Jesus is the center of all Scripture. Christianity began in the Garden of Eden with the first promise of a Savior, and it will reach its marvelous climax on Judgment Day. We can understand Peter's reaction. Can't we stay here, Lord? Don't go back down there to the suffering and the rejection and the death and those things you just told us about six days ago. Don't let this be a preview, but let this be our home now. And suddenly they are enveloped by a cloud, something that in the Old Testament often indicated God's presence. And the Father speaks. Who is Jesus? The Father had spoken the answer at Jesus' baptism. Now he repeats it. This is my Son, whom I love. The only appropriate response from us is to listen to him. We sing in one of our hymns, How good, Lord, to be here. Your glory fills the night. Your face and garments like the sun shine with unborrowed light. That hymn has another stanza. But you, Lord, do not stay. With mercy resolute, you leave the glorious hill to die. Our perfect substitute. This day on the Mount of Transfiguration was not the most glorious day. That was still to come on another mountain, or rather, on a skull-shaped hill where he would pay our ransom price. This hill, the Mount of Transfiguration, was only to encourage them when their cross would seem too heavy to bear. They were to remember that face shining like the sun when they would see in just a few weeks his face bruised and bloodied and twisted in agony on a cross. And they were to know then that no one could hold him to that cross if he did not want to be there. He is there on that cross because he loves you. In the dark and difficult days ahead, when they were tempted to despair and give up, they were to remember that face shining like the sun and know they would see that face again when he would welcome them home to share in his glory forever. As they came down from the mountain, the disciples had some questions. Verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. The disciples were not able to reconcile Jesus' death with his rising again. They would not understand until after Jesus' resurrection. They also wondered about the teaching they had heard that Elijah would come before the Messiah. That teaching was based on prophecies in the book of Malachi. Could it be that Malachi was referring to what they had just seen, Elijah's appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus told them, no. Yes, the coming of Elijah foretold by Malachi was already fulfilled. It had been fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. When you compare the description of John's ministry in Mark chapter 1 with the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, you see that John did exactly what Malachi had foretold. The three witnesses kept the transfiguration to themselves until after the resurrection. James was the first to see that glory again. When he came into the presence of Jesus when he was martyred some eight years later in 41 A.D. Peter wrote about the transfiguration in his second letter. And John saw Jesus' glory again in the vision he was granted on the island of Patmos. He recorded it for us in the book of Revelation. Like Peter, James, and John, listen to Jesus as you continue your journey under the cross on your way to that day when you will receive your crown of life and see your Savior in all his heavenly brightness. The next two weeks as we approach Holy Week, we will take a break from Mark's gospel and give our attention to Isaiah chapter 53. Please join us. As always, if you find these podcasts helpful or if you have suggestions for improvements, please email me at pastor underscore line at beautiful savior or text me at five one three six zero zero nine five six eight. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.